0: hey everyone i'm cappy and you're listening to Beyond on the plate this is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community if you're new to the pod welcome if you've listened before welcome back we hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us and we're grateful to our partners who help make this podcast a reality With that, this episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Cherio Tomatoes. Cherio has been growing the highest quality tomatoes and vegetables in Italy since 1856. They select only the plumpest, ripest, and juiciest tomatoes that are picked and packed in the same day, giving you that ultimate depth of flavor and delicious, great taste. Hey, here's a tip. You're about to be going into cocktail mode with this week's guest. So try using Cheerios passata, which is basically tomato puree, next time you want to make your own Bloody Mary mix at home. It gives you a really robust, flavorful mix. And if you need even more help on that, check out last season's guest from our Beyond the Drink episode, Season 5, Episode 12, with Lynn House, because she shares her tried-and-true Bloody Mary mix recipe. Anyhow, something pretty cool about Cheerio is they employ advanced agronomists to help monitor crops on a daily basis during harvesting. What's an agronomist? Good question. An agronomist is an expert in the science of soil management and crop production. Needless to say, you know you're getting some pretty great quality tomatoes. If you can't find Cherio tomatoes in your local grocery store, they are available on Amazon. To learn more about Cherio tomatoes and all of their products, go to cherio 1856us that's C I R I O one eight five six dot US. Cheerio, we thank you. Hey, everyone, one more thing before we get going. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at Beyond the Plate Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's Beyond the Plate All right, enjoy this week's episode. Let's do a quick start by testing your audio. We usually ask chefs to name 10 things that are synonymous with them. But for you, why don't you go ahead by naming 10 classic cocktails for us?
1: Well, uh, 10 classic cocktails probably started with the Manhattan for me, led into an old-fashioned Tom Collins, a sidecar. Oh, my sidecar story. The Negroni, my favorite cocktail, which led me to... Discover the Boulevardier, a bee's knees. I've really had a lot of fun with playing with some esoteric gins and local honeys. Awesome, you sound good. Okay, good. good, let's rock it.
0: <laughs> All right, today's guest is one of the pioneering and leading bar professionals in the world. He hosted TV shows about cocktails way before many food TV personalities you see today were even on TV. He's got multiple books on cocktails and has his own signature branded line of modern mixologist bar tools. In 2002, he was one of only two Americans to have won the Bacardi Martini World Grand Prix He's designed signature craft cocktails for multiple stadiums and arenas around the country, most recently, the Allegiant Stadium, home of the Las Vegas Raiders. These days, you can find him teaming up with Chef Shaw McClain on the cocktail program at Libertine Social at Mandalay Bay, and I'm sure plenty of other projects, which we will get into. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with someone who has won three Iron Chef America competitions, Master Mixologist, Tony Abuganim. Hello, sir. Hey, Cappy, how are you, my friend? Always good to see you. Always good to chat. Before we get started, I need to brag a little bit, because I think you know this, that my wife and I had the pleasure of sipping on some of your cocktails at our wedding. And after we hung up last time, I realized it was also a friend's wedding of ours in Tucson, Arizona, that reached out to me and said, can you get that Luce del Sol recipe for our wedding? <laughs> Still goes down uh, as I think my number one
1: cocktail, by the way. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you. That's uh, it's one of my favorite creations as well. When I first discovered that Finlandia grapefruit vodka, it just exploded in my mouth and I love grapefruit. So I said, I've got to work this into a drink and, you know, paired up with Aperol and fresh citrus, it's just a no brainer. And so it's, it's a pleasant Drink that you can sip on by the pool or celebrate uh, nuptials with as well. So I'm glad you enjoyed it.
0: So good. Do you remember the
1: cocktail that made you fall in love with bartending? I absolutely do. And I'm going to age myself here, Cappy. it was 1978. I just turned 18, which was the drinking age, legal drinking age in Michigan. My family, Helen, David ran the brass rail bar in Port Huron, Michigan. And my mom and dad took me out for dinner and then to see my cousin, Helen, who was or Helen and my cousin, Tony, who were manning the bar that evening at the brass rail. And in my honor, My cousin Tony lined up all of the classics that we had talked about. And the one that really resonated with me was the Manhattan. And I'm not sure what it was, if it was the simple mix of the rye whiskey and the bitters and sweet vermouth or the fancy cocktail glass they served it in or the little maraschino cherry, but it just came together and has stuck with me. And probably that was the light bulb moment for me that one day, I'll work behind this great bar as well. Wow. Amazing.
0: Okay. So we talk with chefs around the world about how they got to where they are. And some of them still don't know where they're going, <laughs> like a lot of us. But yeah, everyone has a story. Everyone has a journey. And you're one of the most highly regarded bartenders slash mixologists in the world. So I want to know your story I want to start with where you're from. But before that, let's talk bartender or mixologist or both.
1: Well, when I wrote my first book, The Modern Mixologist, I was curious about the history behind the word mixologist because it was the word was starting to get a little bit of, you know, a bad rap and I had never known the word until uh, it was presented to me at the Bellagio when I took that job in uh, 1998 and our friend Dale DeGroff was using that moniker so I called up our good buddy Dave Wondrich and asked him about the history behind the word and term mixologist and he gave me a quote that dated back over a hundred years that said when a bartender has unusual interest and expertise in mixing drinks, they become mixologists. And I truly believe, Cappy, that that definition stands true, that we are all first and foremost bartenders. But when you have that extra interest, that extra expertise in the art of fashioning drinks, you elevate to a mixologist yeah
0: I like it I like it all right so you mentioned Port Huron Michigan talk to us is that where you're that's where you're from yeah
1: born and raised in Port Huron Michigan my cousin Helen David opened the brass rail there with her mother in 1937 so just three years after the repeal of Prohibition the throw of the Great Depression Helen's father passes away they owned an ice cream parlor Helen and her mother were basically broke, and Helen's mom said, Helen, we have to turn the ice cream parlor into a saloon or we're gonna be put out on the street. And Helen said to her mother, Mom, proper ladies do not run saloons. And her mother said, a lady is a lady no matter where you put her, but she's gotta have a buck in her pocket. And that was June 15th, 1937. She ran the bar nearly 70 years until her passing at the age of uh, 91 and the bar remains in the family to this day so uh, it's quite a legacy
0: i don't have this question as part of what i'm going off of but like paint the picture for the brass rail for me I, I want like small town saloon type place local bar what do, what, do, what is it
1: neighborhood bar yeah Cappy. uh you know a beer and shot place at one time it did serve food but uh, during world war ii when couldn't get beef uh she pulled the grill out and it's just remained a uh, shot and beer cocktail bar since you walk in And you know, you open the door and Helen always told me, she said, we are not in the bar business, we're in the hospitality business. And treat your customers at the bar like you would guests in your home. And she always viewed the brass rail as an extension of her living room. And that's the way she operated it. So you open the big door and walk in and you're greeted by this huge back, ornate back bar that, dates back nearly 200 years. Helen's father bought it from a hotel that was going out of business, put it in the ice cream parlor. So it's been there for nearly hundred years. And it's just this beautiful ornate back bar with Tiffany lamps and beautiful solid red onyx pillars and the goddess of wisdom, the goddess of knowledge. And it's just, it's a, it's a one of a kind. You would never expect to find this back bar in Port Huron, Michigan, and standing behind the bar again in this neighborhood bar, and it's always been this way, be it my Uncle Charlie, my cousin Rune, my cousin Tony, my Uncle Saul, all tended bar there, all with a pressed white shirt and a tie on. Helen insisted on that, you know, attire, and a big smile, big handshake, big welcome, and you felt like you were walking into somebody's home.
0: I feel like you're, you're a very well put together guy, and I think these lead into your education and training for other bar professionals on a small and big scale? Am I am I on track there? Did some of this come from that, like Helen making sure, shirt
1: well-presented type thing? Well, you got to remember that my father would take me into the brass rail. He never worked behind the bar. It wasn't his personality, but he would always take me in to see my Uncle Charlie as a small boy. So I have those early memories of just being in awe of them standing behind the bar dressed like that in this beautiful back bar. And I would, you know, fill the empty beer bottles in the cases and bring up full ones and put them in the cooler and help my Uncle Charlie. And then I'd get a Shirley Temple and I'd like, someday, someday. I mean, we met like, we
0: first met, gosh, nearly 20 years ago on the beach in Miami for the South Between Food Festival. You were, I don't want to say one of the first mixology demos that we did live on stage on the beach. And I remember like it was yesterday, you had this clean pressed white coat that you wore. I was like, wow, this guy's not like a schlub, you know? (laughs) He's not throwing on something random. He's, he knows his stuff.
1: Well, I I mean, first impressions are very important. And I, I always think that, you know, even looking back at history, bartenders always took pride in how they were groomed and that their, you know, their nails were cut and clean and their shirt was pressed and their shoes were shined. And I, yeah, I think that is very important, that first impression that you make when you welcome someone into your establishment. But great memory on South Beach, that was, I remember Lee was like, well, we've never really, I, I think it was year two. Uh, they said, never really thought about a mixology demo. And I believe I was like the last one to go on stage and I was blessed to have a standing room only crowd and uh, that that was the start of a long relationship down there and uh, I miss those days. I mean, you knocked it
0: out of the park. I think that opened all of our event production world eyes. We're like, holy crap, this guy's amazing and we need to keep doing these and more of these because people were into it. I, I feel like for me, that was like that kicked off some serious cocktail demos within the festival world and and beyond you know
1: that was kind of the tipping point of this resurgence that we're experiencing in uh, craft cocktails and bringing back the art of mixology um and yeah it's it's become you know when i started even helen didn't want to make me a bartender my dad had to talk her into it because she wanted to send me to culinary school to become a chef. Well, you know, in the early eighties, you know, being a bartender was still kind of like, so what do you want to do? You know, it wasn't a profession to aspire to where being a chef that was a, you know, a recognizable, honorable culinary craft. And, you know, today, you know, bartenders stand neck and neck with any of the culinary crafts. And it's, it's so refreshing to see because, when we talk about hospitality generally your first experience anywhere a restaurant bar is with the bartender and it sets the tone for the evening and you know those old stories you got to be part you know psychiatrist part you know mixologist part wizard <laughs> are true yeah it's uh it really is a social environment and it's uh, all about making the guests experience better when they leave than when they first arrive so what were you up to like what was young tony up to
0: like when you were uh, a little kid
1: well i spent a lot of time on my dirt bike and had visions of being a professional hockey player michigan of course yeah one of the original five or six the detroit red wings but yeah and right across from the bar is the McMorran arena where the port Huron flags played so it was an ihl team and you know going to a flags game as a kid you were just like in awe and then they would all come over to the brass rail after the game and it was packed, and people who were at the game are over at the bar, and the players came over to the bar in special time. But, yeah, if I if I could click my uh, heels, I would have loved to have been a professional hockey player, but uh, still my favorite sport. You must have been excited when the Knights came uh, to Vegas. My gosh. How long have they been there
0: now? This was our fourth season. Okay. I mean, I, I was in Vegas recently, and it's so the amount of people like locals working there that wear the jerseys like on the job.
1: It's pretty cool to see. I love that support.
0: Cap, yeah, you can't,
1: you know, walk down the strip or drive in a neighborhood and not see bumper stickers or flags or t-shirts or hats. They've embraced Las Vegas, but Las Vegas have definitely embraced the Vegas Golden Knights. That's cool. What did mom and dad do? I grew up in a, in a, irish lebanese family so on my father's side you know helen had the bar and on my mother's side uh was french's bakery so i was a chubby little drunk kid running around our house (laughs) but (laughs) sounds perfect any siblings I, i have one younger brother he's two years younger he Tampered in the bar business for a while, but he, uh, after graduating college, he is a new car sales manager in St. Clair, Michigan, and still lives in the uh, house that we grew up in. Um, And his kids were the fourth generation in that house, and now my niece has, uh, will be my great nephew, uh, Jack Anthony, so grooming him for the next uh, great bartender position.
0: Love it. I love it. What was the family table like over like holidays or gatherings? What were those like?
1: My dad worked all the time. He worked. He worked in a factory paper factory, and we lived with my grandmother and my great aunt. So I was raised by a lot of women, which maybe coming back to your Question about being put together. I probably had some help from being around three three ladies. I was there and I we did, didn't have any sisters, so I got all the uh, facials and manicures. So you know, it was always meals at home. It was always you know you ate at the table as a family. My dad was probably absent a lot because he worked swing shifts, uh, so he was on a different schedule every couple weeks but it was always very important to have those meals at the table as a family. And, uh, you know, you didn't have so many distractions back then. You know, going to McDonald's was, a huge treat. It, it rarely happened. I mean, that was really a, a, a night out. And then, you know, the perch dinners on Friday night uh, at the Windjammer, that, that was a big night out as well. We would get dressed up and again, Shirley Temple in hand and the fish fry and uh, Bob Whaler would be playing uh, with his trio. Uh, so it was It was a, you know, a small town, but a lot of wonderful memories and a great place to grow up. I love it. Did you work as a kid that you do you remember your first job? My first job, but my best friend, Marcus Schultz, his family and the two McDonald's restaurants in town. So my First official job at 15 was a fry cook at McDonald's.
0: Chef Ann Burrell, too,'s first job was a fry cook at McDonald's in Is upstate New York. <laughs> she likes to call herself a free TA, as she a says. Fr- <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: you you know, you you mentioned uh, three episodes of Iron Chef America that I competed in. And the very first one, Ann Burrell was on our team. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, how I first got to know Anne. So yeah, I was the fry guy, but I was also as as a child laborer with our family on my mom's side, the French's bakery. I filled a lot of donuts and did a lot of you know work in the bakery. And like I said, I was a chubby little kid. So one donut for the window, one donut for me. <laughs> That's
0: <laughs> my first job. I was packing carryout orders for the local restaurant. And I feel like, Every order got a, a rolls and butter and w- w- the restaurant made all their own salad dressing. So every too often I was taking a fresh baked roll and dipping it in salad dressing oh. and eating it. I'm like, all right, I gotta lay off the rolls. All right, so take us through what you think are the highlights of your career. I want like the, the laundry list of places where you perfected your craft.
1: Well, like I said, I, I learned the basics and you know, the brass rail was based in classics at that time. You know, we talked about the old fashions, sidecars, Tom Collins in the frosted uh, cups or glasses, Pousse Café's we made. I remember with one of the first drinks Helen taught me was a and b but not from the bottle. It was the Benedictine and then you would layer the cognac in the Pousse Café glass to float on top. And that was like her, after dinner, before she went to bed, drink cause she lived uh, above the bar. So she would come in and after having dinner with the, her girlfriends and have a BNB, and I remember layering that. But so that was really, you know, my introduction to the bar business. I then finished college, moved to San Francisco, had the great pleasure of working uh, for Jack Slick. And when I say pleasure, I, I say that a little bit hand in mouth or that he i learned a lot there but jack was not a pleasure to work for but that led to working with boss gags uh, at the blue light cafe so that was a great opportunity which led to m- meeting harry denton and opening in 1991 harry denton's on stewart street which still to this day i would say is probably my greatest uh, bartending experience overall. It, I mean, the team that was put together there uh, and bartending really is about a team. Um, you know, it was uh, funny. It didn't dawn on me at the time and took years later and really until I opened Bellagio to really understand how important being part of a team is. And it, it, I, we would go down into what I call the locker room, the dressing room prior to a shift. And you almost felt like you were gearing up for a football game. You would suit up and you'd put on the uniform and you'd get prepared mentally. And the bar was so busy and it was just so much fun, but probably where I really, really fell in love with bartending. I moved to New York City for a couple years to pursue uh, a theater career. And wow. that's when I, uh, yeah, in, in 1993. I don't know if you recognize me, I was the Elko seltzer Plus cold and flu guy that year, <laughs> 1993. <laughs> I was on my way, Cappy. I was amazing. <laughs> but things that what we a- learn in these, uh, in these episodes. Well, like I said, in the 80s, you know, people say, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a bartender. And I'd be all excited. I said, well, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, what am I not supposed to want to be a bartender?
0: Uh- Wait, I, Tony, I actually have a question. well, two things first, really quick. One for the listener, Tony mentioned some interesting people upon his journey to San Francisco, which we're not going to get into detail on, but I encourage everyone, I always encourage people to Google. And sometimes I don't like to get in the weeds with explaining who a person is that's mentioned if a listener may not know. So please take those names and look into these people because they clearly have made an impact on the industry. My second thing is, why did you decide to go to San Francisco from
1: uh, Michigan? It was really kind of happenstance. My other best friend, Greg Miller, who had graduated a couple years earlier than me, he wasn't on the six year plan like I was. Mm-hmm. He, he had been working in Santa Monica. And I, I had gone my first two years of college, I went to Arizona, back to Michigan, graduated from Northwood Institute. And I, that's where I discovered California for the first time. So California was on my radar. And since he was there, he said, why don't you, when you finish school, head out to Santa Monica. So that was the plan again with the plan of, of acting. And last minute he got transferred up to San Francisco. And he says, uh, by the way, I'm no longer in Santa Monica. I'm up in Northern California in San Francisco, but it's great, check it out. If you don't like it, go down to Santa Monica. And so I loaded up my Mazda and uh, after graduating school and headed out to San Francisco. I never thought I would leave. I love San Francisco. Oh, at that time, fantastic time to be in the Bay Area and just having a great time in a theater group. Uh, But I moved to New York City to pursue a a potential Broadway career. Never happened. But I met Mario Batali, and I was his first bartender at his very first restaurant, Poe, on Cornelia Street in 1993. He introduced me to Dale DeGroff, and I went up and met him at the Rainbow Room and that was it. You know, watching Dale work behind that great bar and his attention to detail and how he interacted with the guests and, you know, the drinks he was making. And that that was that aha moment that as much as I love theater and pursuing an acting career, I had very little control over that. But what I could control was my career as a bartender. And that was, like you said earlier, before there were any TV shows or radio shows or book deals or any, it was just about being a great bartender. And that's really, I I decided at that moment after meeting Dale, that that's what I was gonna do. I was gonna put all that energy into being the best bartender that I could be. And so it really just kinda happened organically from there. Two years later, Harry Denton took over the Starlight Room in San Francisco invited me to come back and be on that team. So I said goodbye to New York City and moved back to San Francisco, worked with Harry, reopened the Starlight Room, created the cable car in 1996, and uh, was happy as a clam. Like I said, I was in a theater group. I was doing great. And one day I get a call from uh, Steve Wynn's people and said, we'd like to talk to you about developing the cocktail program for the Bellagio Resort in Las Vegas. And Cappy, I thought it was the craziest idea in the world. I was like, I'm gonna leave here and this great life to move to Las Vegas. People live in Las Vegas? And uh, I came out and I visited the property and I did about a dozen interviews. They offered me the job. And even in 1998, that job didn't exist. The idea of hiring someone just to develop and design and teach and implement a cocktail program and resort. So I was really the, the first one and which didn't work out well in negotiating a salary either, but <laughs> live and learn and that's, yeah, that's how I got to San Francisco, a little side trip to New York, and then ended up back in San Francisco only to now be uh, over 20 years in Las Vegas. Amazing. So, I mean, at
0: the, you get this call from Steve Wynn's team and I mean, arguably the Bellagio was one of the most anticipated luxury hotel openings in the world. Like at the time, what was that like? And where do you start?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was coming from a lead bartender at the starlight room where we had, uh, I think, seven bartenders on staff and three barbacks. to the Bellagio, where we had 300 bartenders, uh, 150 bar backs and about 200 commies to the bar uh, and over 300 cocktail servers. So I had no idea what I was getting into. And had I, I might not have taken the job. But I am so, so glad that I did, because it really, not only for me, but I mean, it was a... A tipping point in my career for sure, but in the industry overall. Because as you mentioned, all eyes were on the opening of Bellagio, and to that point, you know, no resort had done a fresh drink program, no, you know, a premium uh, cocktails, uh, premium spirits, great glassware, attention to ice in a resort that did twenty-five thousand drinks a day. Um, you know, it was kind of mind-boggling and. Twenty-nine bars, trying to you know kind of just really, and I approached it like I wasn't trying to recreate the wheel. I was just a, you know, I'm not this Harvard grad coming in here to tell you how to bartend. I just think collectively we can we can make the best cocktails in Las Vegas, and that was what we set out to do. And it took a little while, especially for some of the older union bartenders, to drink the Kool Aid, but. Once they realized, you know, that this was just all about embracing and celebrating the craft of bartending and not just pushing buttons and putting drinks in the, you know, out as cheaply as possible to the masses, that they did embrace it. And, you know, it, it, to this day, there's a, still a lot of bartenders that we opened that property with in 1998, still working there. So Wow, that's amazing. But... Can you share some more things to help the listener
0: understand the magnitude of that? I mean, you mentioned 29 bars, one of the first resort hotels to have a fresh, you know, cocktail program. You know, you mentioned the amount of staff. But talk about things like ingredients or I know there's, you know, your 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 point of view on
1: fresh squeeze citrus and things like that. No, absolutely. That was... And I came from the magnitude of one bar to 29 bars with the same philosophy. And like I said, I had never been experienced in that type of a a program or opening before. It it was eye-opening, it was stressful, and it was wonderful all at the same time. But consistency was the biggest issue, you know, when you're talking about that many bartenders and that many drinks and that many outlets and trying to put programs in place where you're doing, you know, Julio Bermejo, my dear friend uh, from Tommy's in San Francisco, I ordered like 300 lime squeezers from him because I wanted all the lime juice to be squeezed a la minute and He drove those lime squeezers from San Francisco to Las Vegas three days before we opened the place. And everyone's like, you got to be kidding me. We're going to be squeezing by hand lime juice into every margarita, every mojito, every cosmopolitan, every daiquiri. I said, yes, we are. And they said, we can't do that. Sure enough, they, you know, like I said. Yes, we can. And they did. And they still do. So it was a lot of obstacles. You know, we the Bloody Mary mix today, over 20 years later, is still the same Bloody Mary mix that we've made when we opened. And, you know, it's like 35 gallons a day made the day before so that it can season and pina colada the same way, you know, Nobody drinks more pina coladas anywhere than maybe Puerto Rico than they do in Las Vegas. So we do our scratch pina colada mix. And yeah, it just, that consistent experience and putting together, you know, the cable car I mentioned, I created in 1996 at uh, Harry Denton's on Stewart Street because the, excuse me, Harry Denton's uh, Starlight Room, the tagline was between the stars and the cable cars. So the cable car in 1996, and I, I almost didn't bring it to Las Vegas because it had such a home in San Francisco. And I put it on the menu at uh, Petrosian Lounge, and all of a sudden, everyone fell in love with it. All the servers, cocktail waitresses, bartenders, and they were like, so I'll, I'll take a Bud Light, you got to try our cable car. This thing is fantastic. You know, you got a beautiful woman at the slot machine telling you this, I, I'll bring me two, you know? And, <laughs> uh, but it was just, you know, and the drinks were, like I said, my, my approach to making drinks, and you mentioned the Luce Del Sol earlier, it's, it's a simple formula. You know, I'm not using a lot of esoteric ingredients and there wasn't, you know, house-made ingredients. It, it, it was just trying to make the freshest drink consistently that tasted good and that was that was the the goal and I, I like I said I my hat goes off to the team there that executed it and brought it to life
0: look I I think there's probably hiccups along the way you've mentioned things like how do you have known the magnitude and the scale would you have taken it maybe maybe not you're glad you did I'm sure there's things you look back on that you may or may not have done different did you ever want to throw in the towel at any point like before that opening or
1: during? Nope, no. Once I was committed to it and, uh, you know, I was thrilled. I, I, you know, I, I realized that we did have a great team and that it would, there would be some bumps in the road, but I knew it would happen. And, you know, the support that Steve Wynn's management team was given to bring it to life. You know, the goal was we want the best of everything, you know, from art to entertainment, to food, uh, to drinks. And so, you know, we kind of had, you know, an uh, open opportunity to, to execute on that. It was, it was wonderful. And it's, you know, had I not done that, it wouldn't, I never would be sitting here talking to you right now, uh, you know, because it really opened up, uh, even though I, I was, you know, doing really wonderful things and having a great career in San Francisco, this really kind of opened things up to a world stage and allowed me to get, you know, to preach the gospel uh, on a a large stage. And, you know, I think, you know, today we all know what is happening in the American bar and beyond. And it's it's so great to see, and and we're all drinking better because of it.
0: Yeah. You seem like a happy, easygoing guy, what motivates you like
1: every day? Well, you know, my people ask me that a lot. And I always say, you know, that I will never know it all, um, not even close. And my goal is to be a little bit better today than I was yesterday. There's always something to taste. There's always something to learn. There's always some new product coming out and, you know, some new opportunity and, uh, I just I look forward to every day, you know, and and I've been that way for a long, long time. I think every day is a new opportunity, and I want to embrace it and and take full advantage. Um, and one of the things I'm, you know, most excited about right now is the inaugural TAG Global Spirits Awards that we're launching here in Las Vegas. As you know, I've judged in San Francisco for the last twenty years last 11 as director of judges. And, you know, I would always envisioned taking it to the next level. And along with Julio Bermejo and David Grabshi, we've, you know, for a couple of years now talked about doing our own spirits competition, a festival really. And we're launching that here in Mandalay Bay. Couldn't be more excited about bringing that to life.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I, I want to hear even more about that because I'm very excited. I was spending a good amount of time on, time on the website the other day, learning more about it. But I want to take a quick second to give some love to one of our partners over at Falk Salt. I'm sure today's guest has an interesting or classic, should I say, point of view on salt in a cocktail beyond what we may know of using it in a margarita or a salty dog cocktail. But beyond cocktails, when you do sprinkle this flaky salt over a great steak when it comes off the grill or on some perfectly ripe tomatoes or even on eggs, as I like to do, get ready for some serious goodness. Because for me, the smoked sea salt flakes get me, but their pink Himalayan salt or their other exciting blends, they have a wild mushroom, a chipotle. They're pretty solid too. As you've heard me mention in previous episodes, Falksalt has been Sweden's premier salt manufacturer for over 190 years. They produce 100% natural Mediterranean sea salt flakes. Falksalt is produced in Cyprus the old-fashioned traditional way from Mediterranean seawater. So here's what happens really quick. In a dust-free environment, experienced salt makers heat up the seawater and then they let it evaporate until these delicate pyramid-shaped crystal flakes appear. It's then harvested, dried, sieved, and finely packed all by hand. Now you want some, don't you? If you can't find Falk Salt in your local grocery store, it is available on Amazon. To learn more about Falk Salt and all of their different flavors, go to FalkSaltUSA.com. That's F-A-L-K-S-A-L-T. USA.com and follow them on social media at Folk Salt USA. Folk salt, we thank you. By the way, Tony, what are your thoughts on salt in a cocktail? We've had quite a few bartenders this season of our Beyond the Drink episodes that are putting like dashes of salt in things, and I kind of love it personally because I was like, you know, I, I came up in the kitchen world. And so obviously we know the importance of salt in a dish and bringing out flavor. And I, you know, I think for the home mixologist or drinker, if you will, you, if you ask them about salt in a cocktail, probably a a margarita is going to come to their, you know, mind, but I'll stop. What are your thoughts?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I approach it like you just mentioned with cooking, where it pushes flavor forward. You don't want to, cocktail to taste salty like you don't want a great ribeye to taste salty you want the salt to help bring out the best of the ribeye I first experienced salt in drinks as a boy I would watch my uncle Charlie who was a career bartender Uh, he would always put a little dash of salt in his beer and it would foam up and That that was always his trick. When he'd get a beer, the bartender would immediately give him a glass, a bottle, and then a little salt shaker because they knew he liked a little salt in his beer. But where I really discovered its benefits in cocktails was early on, 1999, traveled to Guadalajara, was going down to Amatitan to visit Heredura, and every bar or cantina we would go into in Guadalajara, I'm, I'm seeing everyone with a bottle of Reposado tequila and a bowl of limes and a bowl of uh, sea salt, bowl of ice and bottles of Mexican squirt. And they were making this drink called the Paloma, which at that point I had never heard of. But the salt with the grapefruit soda really elevated the, the flavors, it, it pushed it, just a little pinch of that sea salt in the glass with that grapefruit soda. And then I I'm, I'm, was reminded of the salty dog, which is really fresh grapefruit juice and vodka with a salted rim. And the salt with the grapefruit, I think is just a really beautiful addition. So I think when it, uh, it elevates a drink, when it really brings out the best of a drink, it's, it's wonderful. Oftentimes, I think we, we use ingredients like saline. I don't know if we're trying to out-geek the next guy or if it really is beneficial. And that's kind of where I come in on all of those type of things is if it benefits the end cocktail, then I'm all for it. But I definitely don't want the drink to taste salty. I want salt to be an enhancer.
0: All right. So you've authored... Two cocktail books, which we talked a, a little bit about. The first one, The Modern Mixologist, Contemporary Classic Cocktails. And you have one called Vodka Distilled, which I'm a vodka fan. I'm a gin fan. I'm a, I'm a lighter spirit fan, personally. I, I still have like a brown or a darker, but I appreciate when someone gets into the weeds in a good way about vodka gin and things like that. So is there a book besides your two that someone
1: interested in cocktails should have in their collection? I always recommend William Grimes Straight Up Around the Rocks. It's, I don't know what what printing it is, but you can still find first editions uh, sometimes on Amazon and they're not crazy expensive. William Grimes, uh, you probably know, right? It's for the New York Times. Not really a bartender, but he wrote a beautiful book. It came out in 1993, and it's the journey from the early stirrings uh, up until 1993, and it takes you on this beautiful, uh, you know, journey. And I really, really recommend that. You know, Dale's book, probably the book that came out at the right time to you know craft the cocktail. Uh, I, that's always a recommendation. Gary Regan, God rest his soul. Ah, uh, the joy of mixology. He was using the term mixology before really it was mainstream. So, and then you know Dave Wondrich we talked about uh, Punch is a great book if you're a Punch fan. Uh, Imbibe Jerry Thomas's story. There's so many great, great books. When did you know you made it as a bartender or mixologist? I'm I, I'm not sure I I know that yet. I, I'm still I'm still. I'm still striving. You know, I I guess when uh, I'd like to say when I stopped worrying about paying my bills, but I still worry about paying my bills. I don't know. I think think the Bellagio moment solidified that, Uh, you know, because after Bellagio, opportunities presented themselves that never presented themselves before. Then partnering with Sean McLean, you know, I met Sean doing my third episode of Iron Chef America. We were the challengers, and he had Sage here in Las Vegas, and I was still uh, you know, stationed here in Las Vegas, and I'd never, I'd been to Sage, but I'd never met Sean, and so the Food Network people paired us up, and I did the drinks, and he did the food, and uh, we became dear friends and did a lot of charity events after that. And when this space opened up at Mandalay Bay, he called me and asked if I'd like to partner on it and do the drink program and that was Libertine Social. So that was the first opportunity in a long time where I was really hands on behind the bar. And I think that you know be careful what you wish for. What I miss the most about what I do today is not that interaction with the guest over the bar. That that to me, you know, take everything else out of the equation, that to me is the favorite element my favorite element of being a bartender is the interaction with the guest on a nightly basis and and crafting them a a drink and like i said putting a smile on their face and making their day a little bit better Uh, you know it's as you i guess get more successful there's less of that that i get to do so libertine social uh, i'll be there tonight and I won't pull a shift, but I'll be back behind the bar, probably buffing glasses for the most part. But, uh, you know, just that opportunity to be behind the bar and interact with guests. And, uh, yeah, that's my what I miss the most. Uh, uh, but it's uh, an opportunity that I embrace. Yeah. You you
0: mentioned Sean McLean, who I know is a great chef because we used to have him here in Chicago. We've we've talked on this podcast, all types of chefs from all different walks of life and all different cities, countries, you know, et cetera, the Thomas Kellers of the world, Tomas Mobotora, to Grant Ackett, to Jacques Pepin, and plenty more. Some incredibly innovative minds with some of the best palettes in the world. And I'm going to argue and hold to it that you have to have one of the most refined palettes in the industry. When you dine out, are you always looking for that well-balanced or perfectly balanced meal and or cocktail or do you tend to kind of let your guard down a little bit
1: and enjoy i think both to be honest with you you know first and foremost i don't want to go out and be critical i don't want to be you know i want to especially now you know I, i used to go out as we all did a lot i don't do it much anymore i don't know if that'll change or if my habits have changed and I just enjoy being home more and cooking at home but I try not to be critical and I have you know what I have started to notice her things that I remembered loving like I was just in Michigan and there's a place I go for a pickerel dinner and you know every time I'm home I have to go for that pickerel dinner because it just it's a it's delicious and it's just a great memory for me. And, but I am, oh, they, I think they haven't changed the oil recently or, you know, I'll be able, <laughs> they over, overcooked the French fries or, you know, there's something that I, and I try not to be like that. But uh, I have noticed that since, you know, we're kind of coming back and I don't know if it's a staffing thing, if it's a, a produce availability, but things do seem to be a little bit off, uh, I don't know if you're finding that or not, but I
0: am. Uh, and I'm trying to give the industry the benefit of the doubt, knowing there's a service issue, because I get it. Uh, there's a chef here in Chicago that posted something interesting recently. He said, you know, we're at 100% capacity with 50% staff, and our customers want 1000% attention, you know, and I get it. And the other thing I always say is, Everyone's been ordering, ordering in or getting these kits and, you know, not dining out as much. And so I think for a restaurant and the industry as a whole, like this is the time to be, as you mentioned, Tony, as consistent as possible and on your A game. Because if we're just starting to go back to out to restaurants and you're not on your A game, buy like there's you're gonna on to the next restaurant I think people did that anyway but especially now if you like are so excited to go out and you don't get a great meal you're gonna go to the next place unfortunately but yeah it's it's an interesting time for sure but I was curious because I think I think people who know you in the industry when you go to the restaurant they may say as oh, Tony's big in the bar world and cocktail world but in my my head would go to like no this guy like is going to be able to tell if we overseasoned something or underseasoned or balanced the sauce or you know whatever maybe
1: I, and I always uh, you know I'm a little more especially now forgiving especially if the efforts being made but I also understand even on our own restaurant you know we had a really busy night the other night and I, I like I said uh, I spent the whole night washing glasses but it, it was just trying to provide the service that people are anticipating you know it's when you're like that was a great quote and um, a lot of places are having a real hard time staffing their restaurant and uh, yeah it, it'll be interesting to see but I forgive on that side if, if you make it up in the hospitality side
0: yeah I mean look I went to Lotus of Siam and had an incredible meal was the service slow that night yes was the food incredible yes and I'm gonna go back but you know, that's Lotus of Siam. And <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to like when, what is it in the win, wing lay or, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. it's, you're putting out a lot more money for a Michelin star meal or whatever it may be. Let's jump back into the TAG Global Spirits Awards. What made you want to start? You had the vision
1: just to bring, to, to make it more as you were saying. To make it more, yeah, to go beyond. I mean, at the foundation, it is a global spirits competition. And what does that mean global? spirit entries coming from around the world, but also judges from four continents. We really wanted to have a global representation uh, of judges. And then, you know, I always said, you know, you're bringing these great judges, these great personalities together, but nobody gets to experience that. You know, the end user, the consumer, the enthusiast, who, you know, waits for the results, but they would love to, have a chance to drink, have a drink with Dale DeGroff, or talk cognac with Salvador Calabresi. So, our goal is to bridge that to make it also a consumer enthusiast event. And by doing so, we're doing a, a large meet and greet, welcome reception at Libertine Social on Thursday. We have spirited dinners, festive dinners on Friday night, which will be different sponsors that will provide tastings but it will be interactive with some of the judges as well you'll be able to maybe meet some master distillers and then there's educational tracks as well as the pink tie gala at the end after the grand finale tasting on saturday the pink tie gala will benefit the helen david relief fund which is the charity that i started in 2010 to benefit bartenders and their families affected by breast cancer So it's a four-day event starting on Wednesday. Consumers are going to be, I mean, have an opportunity, like I said, to mix and mingle with Doug Frost and Dave Wondrich and Bridget Albert. Just some A-list people in the industry and bring it all to Las Vegas. And it's something we're looking to grow, Cappy. You know, this is year one, so we didn't want to, we wanted to, what's the old saying? (laughs) under promise and over deliver. Is that yeah. how, how it goes Walk before uh, you run any, yeah, just build something that's really uh, fundamentally solid and something that people will look forward to on an annual uh, basis. So we're accepting entries currently from, uh, like I said, any spirit company, we're only doing spirits. We're not doing, you know, mixers or RTDs or seltzers. It's just a spirits competition. And, um, You know, we're very, very, uh, we're we're implementing a new judging format from anything that I've been involved with before. And the excitement for it has been phenomenal and people are really looking forward to it. And uh, the entries are already uh, uh, over uh, uh, what we had thought they would be at this point. And uh, yeah, yeah, you can, uh, uh, I don't know if you mentioned the website, but tag Spirits Awards. Uh, We'll give you more information if you're a supplier or if you're a consumer and you'd like to come out to Las Vegas for a long weekend and attend. It's going to be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, we'll mention that uh, website also uh, at the end of the episode. That's awesome, Tony. I'm very excited for that. And I have a feeling you're going to do it well, you're going to do it right. And I have a feeling 5, 10, 20 years from now... It's gonna be around and people are gonna be talking about it and wanting to go and participate and, and be a part of it. So
1: I'm wishing you all the best on that for sure. And if you don't make it, I'm gonna send you a set of these. Uh, they're being made right now. This is the TAG Universal Spirits glass. Um, and we got all the tasting glasses that we could find. And we wanted to you know find one glass that showcased cognac as well as it showcased tequila or vodka and we put a lot of work into this. We worked with Steel Light International and Rona to hand blow some until we got the exact glass we were looking for and now they're being produced. So, you know, we really wanted to be able to evaluate and give every spirit the the best showing as possible. And without having a great glass, it's hard to really uh, showcase uh, you know, any spirit. So we're very, very proud. Yeah. That's I can't awesome. wait to get you some. Yeah. I love <laughs> that.
0: Thank you. Let's get into social impact and giving back, um, which we started to talk about. You do a uh, plenty of it, as you mentioned, tag global spirits awards. I, I believe benefits Helen David relief fund and share our strength. Or did I make that up? No, you're, you're right. Yeah. And share Our strength. Awesome. And I think, as you know, like uh, these episodes, uh, A lot of them focus on, not a lot of them, all of them focus on the good that chefs, restaurateurs do in their community. As you know, these chefs and restaurateurs get asks all the time to do for charity related things. Some of them have their own, some of them are supporting a friend, some of them, it's a cause that's near and dear to them. And they could do something probably every night of the week, but you and I know that these people are more than the food that's on a plate in their restaurant. And for you, you're more of a a drink that you created in an establishment. And so I would love for you to jump in to all of this, Helen David, really fun. The, the things you've done for Share Our Strength, and I, I know there's a hundred other things you've
1: done, but the the mic is yours, sir. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Cappy. I, I think it was a poem in Harry Macklehome's book that talks about the man behind the bar and how uh, whenever there was a bazaar or some type of a charity or a fundraiser, the first person to, to get hit up was the man behind the bar. And the bar was always there to help promote and support charitable events. And Helen instilled that in me at an early age. She said it's always better to give back than to take. And she was known as the first lady of Port Huron because she was so charitable. She was uh, very philanthropic and it wasn't a softball league or a hockey league or, you know, a basketball league that didn't have a brass rail team sponsored by Helen. And um, if, you know, your kid needed a pair of shoes and you didn't have the money. It was Helen who made sure that kid got some shoes. <laughs> so that was instilled at, you know, at a very uh, young age and with Share Our Strength, it actually I started in Chicago with Bridget Albert uh, about 20 years ago, uh, A Share Our Strength where I did a, I'll never forget, I did a make your own mojito station. And and people that attended the event would come up and we'd get five or six people and I would teach them all collectively how to make a mojito and then they would leave with their drink and then I donated a making great cocktails at home seminar in live auction so that you could bid uh, on having me come out and entertain and teach 12 of your friends in your home uh, how to make great cocktails and what you needed to stock a bar so that was. How I started with share a strength and stayed with them. And then when they started the chef cycle, which is a three day, 300 mile, uh, bicycle ride to support no kid hungry. I got involved with that and still involved with that to this day. Probably one of the greatest physical accomplishments of my life was 300 miles in three days, but I, I am a bit of a bicycle rider. You can probably tell by this svelte physique of mine that (laughs) bicycling is just second nature. But when I formed the Helen David Relief Fund in 2010 with the United States Bartenders Guild, I wanted to, to, yes, to be able to raise money and awareness for bartenders who were going through breast cancer because in Helen's memory, Helen was a two-time breast cancer survivor. And she was a very a big advocate to the cause. So that was why breast cancer was selected. Uh, we do benefit other cases with of other cancers as much as we can. But in addition to that, you know, we work in such a, uh, it's a difficult business and we work late nights. And sometimes maybe we drink more than we should or don't eat as well as we should. So. I formed Team Negroni, uh, Campari uh, USA, big sponsor, and Team Negroni. Negroni, as you know, my favorite cocktail. So we uh, formed a bicycle team that we do bicycle rides around the country, um, generally either during Negroni week and or during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which is October, as you know. So by joining the team and training, not only are you raising money to help those less fortunate you're also taking better care of yourself and that's that's so very important yeah i love it i love all of this all right let's let's do a speed round
0: shall we speed round all right. We may have done a mini speed round in our Beyond the Drink episode last season, but let's do let's do one now.
1: What did you have for dinner last night? Uh, last night, my girlfriend made gumbo, homemade gumbo. Um, I'm very blessed. I have a beautiful girlfriend who's a pastry chef and a wonderful cook, so she made homemade uh, gumbo with saffron rice, uh, and we drank uh, drank a bottle of Pinot Noir and a couple of Negronis. Love it. Uh, Name a smell behind the bar that you love. That I love. Fresh citrus. To me, you know, just the zest of a fresh grapefruit or orange uh, swath is one of the most, uh, it just brightens not only my senses, but it brightens the day. Puts a smile on my face. I love it. How about a smell behind the bar you hate? Oh man, stale beer. You know, if, if, I, if I walk behind a strange bar and, and I'm sticking to the floor and I, that smell hits me immediately, you know, Helen always instilled in me, she said, leave the bar the way you'd like to find it. You'll always have a clean bar. And you know, once a bar starts getting away from you a little bit and you get lazy about cleanliness, ah, it doesn't take long. Good, good points there. What pisses you off behind the bar? Not my job. Oh, those are words I, I, I hate to hear, you know, because uh, another great lesson I learned from Helen was she said, never ask someone to do something you wouldn't do. So I've always tried to, to live by that and, and l- lead by that, teach by that. You know, if someone sees, like I can see me behind the bar buffing glasses uh that you know cutting fruit uh squeezing juice you know it's like well if tony can do it then i guess we can take the trash out too
0: yeah for sure i i I forgot if i told you this or if we've talked about this vaguely ringing a bell but in rachel ray same philosophy in our season one episode one she said the same thing when she was working in restaurants bars in the industry it was the number one pet peeve of hers someone said not my job she was like not your job bye
1: bye Yeah. What makes you happy behind the bar? Smile on a customer's face. You know, I think, you know, when I serve them a drink or tell them a story or shake their hand and they're, you know, happy to be there. And uh, even if they hopefully, you know, if they didn't come in with a smile on their face, by the time they leave, there's a big smile on their face. So
0: how about a cocktail every home
1: mixologist should have in their repertoire? I would say a daiquiri. I think if you can make a classic daiquiri and understand the balance of that sweet and sour drink, like a daiquiri, two parts rum, one part lime, one part simple, it's gonna set you up for a plethora of drinks and a plethora of creative drink ideas by infusing that rum with Bing cherries when they're in season, now you have this fresh Bing cherry daiquiri following the same recipe. So if you can master a classic daiquiri, which uh, Embrey says is one of the six essential drinks, by the way, it'll, it'll lend you to, to sours and fizzes and Collins, uh, all of the sweet and sour drinks, which uh, even the Luce Del Sol we talked about earlier is based on a sour recipe. So once you understand that classic drink, it's going to open up a world of drink opportunities
0: one rule every person should follow when they walk up to a bar and order a drink.
1: (laughs) You're like, where do I start? (laughs) Well, Helen, I I keep quoting Helen. She said, everybody should work for at least two years in the bar business. So they understand what a bartender goes through every night. And if you did that, you might not come in with that pompous attitude or being demanding or being, you know, flashing a $20 bill, like I'm going to drop what I'm doing. I see you, I'll be right there. I've acknowledged you. If you not noticed, I've got four drinks in front of me. So just, you know, have a little patience, have understand, put yourself in the bartender. He's not, or she's not annoying you because, She's ignoring you. She's busy. She's got who knows how many things running through her mind right now. She's got the tickets coming up from the servers. She's closing out a check here. She's in the middle of making three margaritas. I'll be right there. Take a look at the menu. So, yeah, understand what that person is going through at that moment and have a little patience. Yeah.
0: Or if you are being an ass, then maybe she is ignoring you. Um, <laughs>
1: there is that. <laughs> All right,
0: let's uh, final question here, wrapping it up, not to sound dark, but I recently listened to this podcast with this renowned doctor, Dr. Peter Atia. really interesting guy. He was having a conversation with Hugh Jackman, which uh, I thought was weird at first, but I came to learn they're, they're friends, they're friendly. They've done stuff work with each other. They were talking about like the self, if you will, I'm using air quotes. And they brought up something really interesting, which was, and this is based on kind of like the legacy question, if you will. But their whole point was, are you living your eulogy? Or are you living your resume? And I thought that was very interesting. So my question for you is, what do you hope your friends and family say about Tony Abugani?
1: That he left things a little better than, uh, how do I say this? That things are a little bit better because of him. And I, and I don't know exactly. I, I mean, one of the greatest things, Cappy, is when somebody comes up to me and says, I saw you speak and you changed the way I look at being a bartender. When someone says, you know, Thank you for riding all those miles for the Helen David because I was able to you know, get a, these tests and pay my co payments. You know, just hopefully leaving something behind to make it a better place, better business, better industry, better profession. Yeah, it's amazing.
0: Thank you, Tony. This was awesome. I've been wanting to do this for so, so, so long, and I'm glad we we finally made the time to do it. I am always in awe of where you come from, your love of Helen David, and always referencing her and what you do to give back and what you've created. I mean, you mentioned things like cable car. I'm going off on a tangent here. You mentioned things like cable car, like you've created drinks that live on menus in various places. Like today's mixologist, I'm not taking anything away because there's people who who are extremely talented and they're creating a cocktail that's on a menu in a place they're working in. And maybe they're bringing it to another place, but you've created, like some classic stuff. Like you could Google names of cocktails, and you created that. Like that's incredible to me, and I'm I'm always and still in awe of what you've accomplished and what you continue to do. And sometimes I wish I was a bartender so I could take one of your classes, but I guess the next (laughs) best thing these days is, you know, trying to book the tag global spirits awards. So thank you. Thank you. We've, we've, you know, it's been nearly 20 years since we've met. And like I said, I remember like it was yesterday, you know, meeting you on the beach and watching how entertained everybody was watching you make, you know, a cocktail on the beach on stage. So that wasn't a thing back then. Chefs, chefs doing cooking demos, you know, wasn't was barely a thing back then. Well,
1: hopefully we'll get to do that again uh, soon. Uh, I would look forward to that and you can always tune in. I do, uh, I do a consumer show last Sunday of every month on talk shop live network. Oh, really? It's yeah. It's at three o'clock Pacific time uh, making great cocktails at home. So it's, it's for the consumer, uh, you know, to better up your mix, your home mixology game. and Yeah, I love uh, it. You know, it's a, yeah, it's I a lot of fun. And, I am yeah, going it. Tune in.
0: And I'm going to, and I have to tell you, you know, you were one of a few uh, mixologists that we had on our last season of Beyond the Drink, which is the companion podcast to what we're doing right now, Beyond the Plate. And whenever I would talk to some of these mixologists, most of them were younger, whether it was in Miami or Austin or Chicago, wherever it may be. I would give examples. I would say, yeah, we've done a few of these with Tony, i him and here's what he did. And, you know, most, if not all of them are like, oh yeah, I know Tony, you know, <laughs> which is awesome. So, all right, sir, thanks again. We will, of course, stay
1: in touch. We'd love to see you here in Las Vegas uh, for the Tag Global Spirits Award. Just be nice to give you a hug and maybe we'll share in a groan too. Yeah, I love that.
0: Thank you, Tony. Enjoy the rest of your day and thanks again for the time.
1: Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks again to Tony Abugani. Find more on him at modernmixologist.com. To learn more about the TAG Global Spirits Awards and the Helen David Relief Fund, go to tagspiritsawards.com. And to learn more about No Kid Hungry, go to nokithungry.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Podcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media is by Sarah McClellan, me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, presented by Ford's Gym. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.